Hello, AJT listeners. My name is Ali Strauss, and I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and an AJT editorial fellow. Today, I'm hosting a specialty podcast in which each fellow discusses a topic of interest to the transplant community. Our topic for today is international efforts to eliminate gender disparities in allocation of liver transplants. We will be talking about evidence regarding gender disparities in the allocation process, potential mechanisms for these disparities, and proposed ways of addressing these issues. And I'm joined today by Allison Kwong and Manuel Rodriguez Paravalaris. Allison Kwong is a transplant hepatologist at Stanford University. She completed her MD at Mount Sinai and residency at UCSF. She did her GI fellowship and master's in epidemiology and clinical research at Stanford and then went back to UCSF for her transplant hepatology fellowship before returning in the end to Stanford, where she is now. Her clinical and research interests include cirrhosis and liver transplant-related outcomes. And also, Manuel is a transplant hepatologist and associate professor of medicine at the hospital Reina Sofia and University of Cordoba in Spain. It was at the University of Cordoba that he received his medical degree, master's degree, in research and methodology and statistics, and his PhD. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship in liver transplantation at the Royal Free Hospital, and his research focuses on liver transplantation, immunosuppression, and hepatocellular carcinoma. So today, the podcast topic was spurred by an article published in the American Journal of Transplantation by Bernard Zedal called Awarding Additional Meld Points to the short, Shortest Waitlist Candidates Improves Sex Disparity in Access to Liver Transplantation in the United States. In this study of liver transplant candidates in the U.S. between 2014 and 2019, the Liver Simulated Allocation Model, or LSAM, was used to model waitlist outcomes of awarding additional meld points to shorter candidates compared to the current policy. The authors found that awarding an additional one to two meld points to the shortest 8% of liver transplant candidates would improve percentages of transplants and death for women with the least negative impact on the taller candidates. They proposed that this strategy would be considered in national policy allocation to address sex-based disparities in liver transplant. So the premise of this article is that there's a gender disparity between men and women for who undergoes liver transplant with women up to 30% uh, less likely than men to get a transplant. So starting off, I'd love to talk to you guys if you could provide a little more background on the evidence for these differences by gender with weightless outcomes that we have seen so far related to weightless mortality and receiving a transplant. Sure, I'll go first. <laughs> At least, um, you know, I, I have... From the from the U.S. perspective, it's been pretty well described um, in in our system where these disparities arise, and it's very consistent over the past two decades uh, that at least that there's been a, a women experience more weightless mortality and also less access to transplant compared to men, and that's been. The, well, what we call multifactorial, but three main reasons. One being height is one of them, as you mentioned. So women having a smaller, having a smaller donor pool or a size mismatch issue, they can't take big livers and, but big people or taller people can. And so they just have a smaller donor pool. The second is the, the creatinine term in the MELD score. And so when we introduced MELD 
in the US in 2002, it had it, it actually introduced us a bit of a sex-based disparity because for the same degree of renal dysfunction, women lose out or have uh, one or two fewer melt points than men. And that's a that's because they generate they have less muscle mass and generate a lower a lower creatinine on average. And then the third factor is is the fact that men disproportionately had have more HCC and and exception points. And historically, patients with HCC had too many exception points in 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 the U.S. system. But I would say that that third factor, because of the recent policy changes, ha, has been uh, mostly addressed, or at least that disparity um, has lessened. So the main two remaining in the current U.S. system are, are height and creatinine. I totally agree. I think that this problem is uh, not only happening in the U.S. If you if you look at any other country and you look for it, you will find some inequities, sex-based sex disparities for excessive liver transplantation, for instance, in, in Spain or in the U.K., this uh, excess of mortality in the waiting list has not been clearly shown for women. But what you will find is that women, when they access the waiting list, they have features of a more advanced liver disease. They have higher bilirubin, probably worse renal function, and also increased rates of ascites. So they were supposed to wait shorter to get a liver graft, but in, they, they have the opposite. I mean, they have to wait longer and sometimes significantly longer. In the UK, uh, we recently saw some data of uh, an average of uh, 30 days more in women than in men, despite these baseline differences in in severity of the disease. So uh, this is a, a problem not only related with hate, because this may be just the, the top of an iceberg. And I think that if I have to, to choose one, one uh, thing to blame is uh, would be serum creatinine as part of the male and male sodium-based systems, which, uh, of course, disadvantage women, patients with uh, shorter height, and also other subgroups historically penalized, such as patients with frailty, sarcopenia, malnourishment, etc. Great, great. Thank you for outlining all those different mechanisms that you guys see as contributing to these disparities. It's helpful to kind of have that framework going into things. So I do want to talk about the papers that you both have written on this subject. So Allison, you were senior author on the major MELD 3.0 paper in gastro back in 2021, and you've continued to do amazing work in that space. MELD 3.0 added to the MELD sodium by including female sex and serum albumin. You guys also in the model itself included interactions between some of the variables in this upper bound for creatinine at three. And with those changes in that paper, you showed that the MELD 3.0 had better discrimination than MELD sodium, and it reclassified almost 9% of patients, particularly women that had died uh, into a higher MELD tier. So using the liver simulation allocation model, that LSEM, you showed that it could have the MELD 3.0 could have resulted in fewer weightless deaths compared to the MELD sodium. So can you speak with that work that you did? Can you speak to your team's selection of variables, particularly related to gender disparities and, and how you guys went about saying, you know, this is what we'll include in our MELD 3.0 and also things that you didn't include and why? Yeah, great. So, yeah, we we didn't not that we explicitly set out to say, you know, we're going to fix the sex disparity, but we conveniently, you know, did, um, you know, we set out to 
to refit the melts court for several reasons, one of which was the sex disparity, the others really being, you know, that liver disease had really changed since the last time MELD was updated, well, with sodium, and then also originally implemented 20 years ago. So really seeing, you know, do, what works best in the current era with the what we, what we currently have with less hepatitis C, more NASH, more CKD. Uh, we did throw out variables like age or race, which wouldn't really be acceptable in the current system, as well as things like ascites or encephalopathy, which were in the original child P score and, and were felt to be too subjective uh, for, for allocation in our system. So, and then added in sex and, and, and albumin, and those ended up being significant. So th that's why they're, they're additional variables in the model. And, and that does address in many ways, or in, in some ways, the sex disparity um, and the creatinine problem. It adds 1.33 points for women, among other things, and and that does seem to address in part the sex disparity, which it makes sense. The previous research had had shown, you know, that that women on average lose one to two points relative to to men because of the creatinine problem. We were asked to look at height um, as well, knowing that it does contribute to to worse outcomes on the wait list for women. It's very collinear with with sex uh, statistically we know women tend to be shorter so adding those points for for women tends to address a lot of it height adds a little bit more as far as performance statistically but it's hard to tease them out and it made things more complex and and those points for women really seem to address a lot of the the, the issue or the really improved the performance and the additional improvement in performance was kind of marginal when you add it in height. And then on a philosophical level, MELD is really a survival model without, you know, if you don't have transplant, it's for weight, it's for mortality uh, from liver disease. And biologically, there's no reason being shorter should make you more likely to die from liver disease. So that's more of an access to transplant issue that maybe we'll touch on later, but might be addressed in different ways than baked into the, a meld, the meld score. Great, great. So sort of use thinking of height as something that isn't necessarily meant for the model to address when the model is about your risk of mortality and thinking about that more as something that needs to be addressed in allocation itself and also the collinearity aspect, which you guys described in your paper really nicely too. That makes sense. Thank you. Manuel, your group had a great article uh, in the Lancet Gastro and Hep Journal about the gender equity model for liver allocation, or GEMMA, um, which was a prioritization score for three-month survival on the wait list. It was derived and validated outside the U.S. So in that study, you focused on the outcomes of mortality or delisting due to 90-day clinical deterioration. Of those transplanted within 90 days, you guys found that 12.6 of the patients would have been prioritized differently, which could be that one in 21 deaths uh, could have been potentially avoided and one in eight deaths among women particularly. So can you tell us about your experience with creating your model, the GEMMA? And um, I'd love to hear about your considerations when building that model in terms of the predictors that you used or didn't include as well, similar to what Allison just described for her group. Yeah, as I've said, we had a different approach to this problem because we strongly believe that the, the underlying issue is uh, with serum creatinine. So we aim to 
uh, replace serum creatinine in the model with uh, another parameter of renal function, which is the royal free GFR, which is independent of uh, muscle mass. So at the end, we had another model, including also information on renal function, but uh, completely independent from, uh, from aspects related to malnourishment or uh, low muscle mass. So we created this model in the UK. We developed the model and internally validated the model in the UK. But then we took the model and to another country with a different allocation system to Australia and validated the model. And in both uh, countries, as I have said, with different allocation systems, uh, the GEMA score had a benefit, a discrimination benefit over melt sodium and also over melt 3.0. And I have to say that this uh, discrimination benefit in terms of the Delta C statistic was the highest ever seen since the creation of MELD. Uh, for instance, in the MELD 3.0 paper, this Delta value was 0.007. And with Gemma Sodium, this Delta value was 0.029. So more or less four times higher. So this makes a, a big difference. And uh, as you have said, it allows to avoid a significant number of uh, deaths in the waiting list. And the, the most important part, I think, uh, or the most important effect is that this delta value, this uh, discrimination benefit was uh, highest among women, where we found 0.054, seven times higher than, than that found with other models. So I think this is a, a very good model and the only one with external validation in, in a different country. So we strongly believe that the, the GEMA model is a, is a great advantage for a prioritization system and, and, uh, I think should be tested locally in other, in other uh, countries also for adoption. Great. Yeah. Thank you for walking through the the different variables that you guys used and one striking thing about your paper is the external validation in that Australia cohort um, I think that add added a lot of power to already something that you were showing had good discrimination do you mind speaking a little bit about your the relevance of that local and also external validation for these models for implementation well we have said that uh, sex-based disparities or any other disparities are heterogeneous among countries. I mean, this is very well studied in the, in the United States, but also has inherent implications in other countries. So probably a solution of a correction or empirical collect correction of meld in the U.S. could not be directly took to an, a different country because the, the disparities would be different and probably this would not work. So this is why the ideal situation before changing an allocation system is to test the new system in your setting. So local validation is the ideal situation. But if you don't have the data to locally validate the new score, the best alternative is to choose uh, a score which is externally validated. Because if one score works, in two different countries with two different allocation systems, it's more likely that if you go to a third country, uh, it will also work as well. So uh, validation is really important if your model is 
fitted to your country. For instance, I think that I'm strongly convinced that MEL 3.0 is a good, very good solution for the U.S. Strongly believe so. But if you are not working in the U.S. and you want to move to another system, I think you should try to look for another one with external validation. Great, great. And um, I think that would be really helpful for people from all different countries to hear sort of, well, you know, we don't need to recreate the wheel and start all over and make our own allocation model because we don't need, we have the Gemma, we have the MELD 3.0, we don't need every country to be creating their own. But I think what you're saying is that the Gemma might be a good place to start for people if that's where they think their popu- the disparities that are relevant to their population, and then also if they have that data available readily. So that's really helpful. Allison, do you mind speaking a little bit on this idea of sort of what next and the making all of this practical and usable for allocation? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think for each country, it's so important to understand if it, those the model you're considering works for that population. And it's unfortunate that we don't each, you know, we don't have the data yet to really be able to compare the models in each system. Like we don't collect all the variables that you need to calculate Gemma, for example, and other systems don't yet collect uh, albumin uh, or even sodium sometimes. So it's um, that's just the first step is having that, the data in your system to understand whether you have that disparity, how this model is going to address that disparity. I, to answer your question, I think it's going to be a, a little bit of a U.S.-centric answer. Um, um, but uh, we are uh, implementing uh, MELD 3.0 this year uh, in the U.S. allocation system. So we'll see what the effects of that that will be. Um, we did consider other you know, uh, possible alternatives and, and really... Um, uh, came up with MEL 3.0 being the best for our system or the most, the most ready to, to move forward. And, and so we'll see how that, that works out. Great. Thank you. I guess one question for both of you guys, just sort of while we talk about allocation, actually putting these things into practice, are there things that your teams have discussed that might be sort of unforeseen consequences? of these models, whether it's based off because of the variables involved or implementing them properly or what sort of unexpected consequences, I guess, do you think might happen um, with the, the models that you guys have here? Or if you don't have any specific to yours, just in general with any other ways that you see people trying to address gender disparities, some sort of un- unintended consequences. Yeah, but I guess if it was unexpected, then we would have, you know, we weren't able to anticipate it. <laughs> uh, the main question when we were going through it was was whether to include albumin or not. And the MEL 3.0 paper, we didn't know because um, whether, you know, the community would accept it. So we had models with or without. And the model with albumin performs better and consistently does. And maybe that's because it's a... Uh, we think a, a surrogate for frailty or, or sarcopenia uh, that is objective. Uh, so, so we 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 liked to or uh, we we favored that that model, and that's the model that uh, seemed to perform best and and was uh, taken up for implementation. But it's still controversial whether or not albumin should be in the model. Um, people think it might influence clinical practice in a 
where it shouldn't. If you're getting more points for having low albumin, would people not give the albumin then, even though it's clinically indicated? So that's a potential situation that could happen um, and that we'll have to be to look out for. It's in the, you know, the way we looked at it in our system was that, you know, the the impact of albumin or the points you get for albumin is actually not very much. And then actually, because of the interaction term, it, it diminishes as the creatinine goes up. So over two, you don't, creatinine over two, you don't get more points for the, having low albumin. So it shouldn't, at least in the situation of something like hepatorenal syndrome, it shouldn't um, change your clinical or affect your clinical practice. You should give the albumin if you think they need it or they um, but we'll have to see if that, you know, that really is the case and, and be careful about about that or, or the impact on 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 clinical practice. We don't want allocation rules to to get in the way of, of clinical management. I think that uh, regarding GEMA, the most uh, challenging, uh, of course, is uh, is the new variable included, which is, which is the royal free GFR. This is a calculation of uh, estimated glomerular filtration rate, which includes age, gender, ascites, if moderate severe, urea, creatinine, sodium, and ionine. So when we have talked in, in several forums about this uh, model, there was quite a concern about ascites as part of this GFR calculation. Ascites in the whole GEMA model is less than 7% of the model. So if you only change a ascites of your patient, the model will likely not change at all, or one point at the most. But the truth is that ascites is a first-line prognostic factor in patients with the compensated cirrhosis, which changes uh, survival expectancy. So uh, I think that it adds actually to, to the prognostic uh, ability of the model. And also ascites can be transformed in an objective parameter because when a patient enters in the waiting list, all patients undergo an imaging technique, mostly angio-CT. So you can see in your angio-CT when the patient is included, whether there is ascites or not. So I think that this objective, uh, this uh, subjective parameter, as you may think of, is not so subjective. And uh, I think that uh, including ascites as part of the GMI is actually strength, the model, rather than a weakness. Great. Thanks for explaining that. And that does make a lot of sense if we say that, you know, it should be based off of imaging findings because that would be a way to keep everyone objective. You know, in, in bringing us to a close here, this is a conversation about gender disparities. So I think we'd be remiss to not talk about the... um any attention or conversation that's happening regarding including considerations for non-binary and transgender patients in this research space um, or allocation considerations. I don't know if one of you guys can speak to how that has been in the conversation at all with either MELD 3.0 or Gemma. Yeah, yeah, this is something we've been talking about um, as we implement, go to implement MELD 3.0, where sex is is a, a new variable, at least on the, on the research side, you know, we hadn't had, we haven't had, you know, we've just had the data say male or female, and it's whatever is reported, which is usually sex at birth. And, but, you know, having this new variable, we're just trying to figure out how to get that, that wording Right. Or, you know, how to consider patients who are non-binary or transgender and, and how to represent their sex accurately. 
And that's actually what's the delayed implementation of, of MEL 3.0 just a bit to get it to get it just right. It, it's going to be, you know, across, you know, sort of OPTN, there, there will be the field is going to be standardized. The sex field will be clarified to be sex at birth. And then for liver listings, we are collecting a new field and that's going to be called sex for the purpose of MELD calculation. So this is up to the clinician or the program in conjunction with the patient to report what they identify as currently. And it will allow us to calculate the MELD 3.0 for them based on their current sex as what's reported, but then also understand, you know, how many patients that impacts where their sex effort is different from their current reported sex. And hopefully we can, that'll help us collect more data in the future and understand what their, what number, how many patients this impacts and what their outcomes are under the, the current, the new system. I totally agree with, with Alison. I think this is something that uh, requires more investigation because uh, we are, we have been using for the development of this uh, models database sometimes if five to ten years ago. So we didn't have actually this, uh, this situation of uh, non-binary patients. So now we have to pay more attention to this. And uh, I think that um, we have to look closely, particularly to those models who, which include sex directly in a, as a parameter of the model itself because they could be vulnerable to, to changes in, in the gender status of the patient. Great. Thank you. That's great to hear that it's part of the discussions that, you know, leaders in the field like you guys are having and that you're aiming to get at some of the data collection issues, which is one of the main problems when you speak of um, these populations. So that's fantastic. Alison and Manuel, would you like to give any parting pearls to our audience of listeners on this topic of gender disparities across different countries now we've been talking about from Spain to the US. Yeah, I love the the different the perspective on uh, the international perspective that we have today. Of course, I represent the US side of things. I'll, I'll, I should have mentioned earlier um, the continuous distribution model or framework that's coming for the U.S. system and how, you know, what things we've been talking about today uh, fit into that. But it's it's coming for liver. And, and I think we've probably, this is AJT, so, you know, it's already affected uh, lung and, and soon to be kidney. Uh, but, you know, so it should be hopefully uh, familiar. Uh, the transplant community should, should know, you know, it assigns points for different attributes. And the unique thing about liver is that it's very heavily urgency-based and our liver community has accepted or, or agreed that that's what's most important to us. But continuous distribution will add points for other things, potentially post-transplant survival, access to transplant or travel efficiency. And, you know, the things we've been talking about today, MEL 3.0 and GEMMA, they're mortality models, but uh, height is still going to be a problem even if you implement MEL 3.0. The question is just kind of how how much of a problem still is going like, to, is there still going to be a residual height issue or donor size mismatch? And the answer is yes. And how are we going to account for that in, in continuous distribution? So the math may not be, you know, related to the original article that we've been talking about. The math may not be like as it is in the current meltsodian system, 
but it's still going to be something we, that we'll have to put into um, that we are you know leaning towards putting into the continuous distribution model and and there will be points for height uh, i strongly believe that we are facing a very exciting phase now uh, because for i don't know for more than a decade we have been talking about sex-based disparities for accessing liver transplantation but now for the first time we have tools to face this problem and to try to address it we have mel 3.0 and we have gemma so now now it's the time to start using it to address the problem and i encourage everyone to go to the online calculator of gemma gemma-transplant.com and and try for your patients and you will see differences in in allocation with uh, with other models and and try to find the one that fits best your scenario amazing and uh we'll provide hopefully the links in the post but just in case the meld 3.0 is meldcalculators.stanford.edu/meld um so you can find both of the calculators at those two places and you know thank you Manuel and Allison so much for taking the time to speak with me today uh it's an absolute honor to be able to speak with two leaders in the field really trying to make a change and you know just so our listeners know the timing of an international discussion about gender disparities is difficult we've got Allison is at 10:20 a.m. I'm here on the east coast at 1:20 p.m. and Manuel is in Spain and I believe it's 7:20 p.m. where you are so I really appreciate the the coordination and the and the time you guys have all taken um and a thank you to the AJT editorial fellowship for the opportunity to do this specialty podcast I hope this discussion was helpful for our listeners to understand the current climate of gender disparities in liver transplantation the opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.